Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It's glad to be back. Last week, it was uh, really a, a fun week. A week ago, I was uh, speaking in uh, Texas to the Texas Baptist Association. There were 72 churches that I represented at the uh, Boomers Conference there, and, and I did a couple of programs, and what a great time. What a great group of people. They really uh, love this uh, picture of God and the uh, design law perspective and really resonated with it. And So I want to say hi to some of our new friends and the Texas Baptist Association. It's the second time they've had me speak for them. And then I was at uh, Glendale uh, Adventist Church out in Glendale, California uh, last Sabbath and uh, had a good time with that group and hello to all you guys. And a couple of announcements to make. This is the God-shaped brain in Korean. It came out in Korean this week and we're really excited about that. So there's a link on our website where people can order it in Korean and it took uh, basically two and a half years for them to translate um, this, and we're going to send one over to the pastor of the Korean church right over here today and let him uh, have it as a gift copy. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to study. We ask that your spirit will be with us, enlighten us, help us draw near to you, and understand your kingdom and share it more effectively, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number one in a new quarterly called Jeremiah, and the title this week is The Prophetic Calling of Jeremiah. And the second paragraph in Sabbath's lesson says, Despite decades of fervent warning and pleadings, the people, for the most part, didn't listen to the messages he gave them from the Lord. Why do you think they didn't listen? Do you think they thought, well, we know we're wrong, and we know we're fighting against the Lord, but we don't care? Do you think they thought that way? No. No, I don't think so either. Do you think they did not believe Jeremiah? Yeah. Why might they not have believed him? What have been the contributing factors that prevented them from believing him? Yeah. He didn't say what they wanted to hear. He didn't say what they wanted to hear, and what they wanted to hear was being predicated on... Did they have any scriptures that they might have been pointing to that they were drawing a different set of beliefs and conclusions from? Did they have any promises in the books of Moses that they were looking for a certain view of how things were supposed to unfold and it didn't fit with what Jeremiah was saying? Oh, this morning as I was uh, doing some meditation this morning, I was reading the book called Desire of Ages and I was looking at page 279 and 280 and I read the following. And this, uh, the context of these two paragraphs is Jesus had just called Matthew to be one of his uh, apostles, and Matthew was holding a feast with the tax collectors, and Jesus was at the feast held by Matthew. It says, Jesus pointed out the power of false teaching to destroy the appreciation and desire for truth. No man, he said, having drunk old wine straight away desires new, for he says the old is better. All the truth that has been given to the world through the patriarchs and prophets shone out in new beauty in the words of Christ. But the scribes and Pharisees had no desire for the precious new wine. Until emptied of the old traditions, customs, and practices, they had no place in mind or heart for the teachings of Christ. They clung to the dead forms and turned away from the living truths and the power of God. It was this that proved the ruin of the Jews, and it will prove the ruin of many souls in our own day. Thousands are making the same mistake as did the Pharisees whom Christ reproved at Matthew's feast. Rather than give up some cherished idea or discard some idol of opinion, many refuse the truth which comes down from the Father of light. 
They trust in self and depend upon their own wisdom and do not realize their spiritual poverty. They insist on being saved in some way by which they may perform some important work. When they see that there is no way of weaving self into the work, they reject the salvation provided. A legal religion can never lead souls to Christ, for it is loveless, a Christless religion. Isn't that profound? So do you think that they had a view historically from Scripture that obstructed their ability to assimilate what Jeremiah was saying? Did the Pharisees in Christ have the same problem? So if we look at the specific things that they were doing with the scripture, I, I broke down the following. <clears throat> Holding to interpretations of tradition rather than being willing to reinterpret those traditional views with new light, new perspectives. What aided their ability to resist the light? I think it was failure to interpret metaphor, symbols, types into their true reality-based meaning, holding to the metaphor and the symbol and the type rather than interpretation to what it, the reality to which it points. They also... Re- yes? Why do people like old wine versus new wine? The old wine is intoxicating. The old wine... Yes, the, the old wine is intoxicating. This is, a, this is a great metaphor. Old wine versus new. New would be grape juice. Old wine would be fermented wine. Old wine intoxicates, meaning it benumbs your senses. You can't think as clearly, but you get a warm fuzzy all over and you feel good. Uh, In Revelation, it talks about a certain system that intoxicates the whole world on the wine of their fornication. It's a way of thinking, a way of believing that, that clouds our ability to see reality. We'll see if we can unpack that here in a minute. Yes? Clouds the mind. Clouds the mind. That's exactly right. And so one, one thing that happens, though, specifically, is they stay with, with, with the, the symbolic rather than looking at what it points to. I think they also rejected the integrative evidence-based approach, taking their scripture understanding and requiring it to conform to how reality works in God's design and one's experience, which Christ constantly, the new light he was putting the scripture in, he was constantly giving them object lessons from nature, showing how in nature these truths bear out and then demonstrating it in action as he healed and restored and even said to Thomas, put your hand in my side, experience, use your experience to make a good, good judgment, stop doubting, have faith, and then failure to grow past one through four decision making which is staying stuck on an imperial law construct. God's got a system of rules, and you've got to obey the rules. Yes? Well, I mean, when you have an idea that you've come to think is right, you keep wanting to think that's right, and you feel threatened by new ideas. A lot of people do, and they think, well, that means I'll have to reject the old thing I accepted, and that means I'm wrong, and people don't like to be wrong. I think that's why we probably have so many different churches that are Christian churches. I think of it like lava. You know, they they're come out, they're hot and steamy and wonderful, and then it kind of cools down and then just stays put. Well, the next flow of lava comes on down maybe further. And so you get these various religions that stopped at a certain point. They had a good start, maybe, and then they stopped there, and they wouldn't grow beyond that. And I wonder if we're in danger of that. This, this is a real important dynamic you point out, and it's really true. People become threatened and angry, but there are two caveats you left out as to why they become threatened and angry. And the two caveats, or the underlying reasons this happened is, when they actually are believing something that is false, they will become threatened and angry with the truth, because it it, it, it unsettles and it doesn't fit their way of seeing things. And two, 
when they believe the truth, but they don't know why they believe the truth. They just have some truth somebody told them. They hold to the truth, but they have no reason for it. So it's not anchored in a reality that makes sense to them. It's just a rule that they keep. Even if it's true rule, it doesn't have any anchor that gives them a sense of stability. When you actually believe the truth and you're anchored into reality with that, then the truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing by close investigation. We're not threatened when people come and say, hey, I don't see it that way. You go, okay, well, show me what I'm missing. I'm always open for new evidence. I'm I'm finite being. I don't know all things. So what what am I? And you look at an evidence-based approach to things, you're not threatened when people challenge because it has to fit to a certain reality, a certain way reality actually works. But it's those two caveats, believing a lie or believing a truth without understanding why. Yeah. So you look at these combined errors, the error of holding to symbolism metaphor, the error of holding to an imperial law construct and failing to integrate one's understanding into reality. This led to this religion of rules, rituals, um, behavior-oriented focus, carrying out um, commands, observing Sabbath and feast days, etc., etc., that made them feel safe if they did all the rules, if they followed them. If I do this, uh, sacrifice on the right day, bring the right offering, uh, pay my, my, my tithes from my garden, do all the right rules, I'll feel safe, i feel secure. Are we doing any better today? Could Christianity be caught in a similar situation, claiming belief in Scripture but denying the truth about God? Jesus said many will come in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. Not in the name of Buddha. Not in the name of Muhammad. In the name of Jesus. He's talking about Christians. And he says, well done. No, he says, get ye hench, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We weren't, you didn't know me. We didn't have a relationship. And Paul says in the last day there'll be terrible times. People are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, arrogant, abusive, all these things, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. These are not agnostics and atheists Paul's talking about. These are religious people. Could the Seventh-day Adventist church be vulnerable to the same problem? Believing we're secure because we have certain Bible interpretations... But in reality, we're stuck in metaphor. Fail to grasp the reality to which the metaphor points, accepting and simultaneously accepting an imposed law construct of rules and rejecting the integrative approach. And with these errors, can we be trapped in a false system that keeps us observing the law, but without any real victory? Well, you know it says in Christ's Object Lessons, the message for this time, you've heard this before, this is Christ's Objections 4.15, it is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. And the message for the end time, the final message of mercy to lighten the world for his coming is, in this quotation, the message of his character of love. Why is this the last message to be given? The message of his character of love. Why? Because it's following the truth. It's found in the truth. And how is this last message connected, particularly for Adventists, in prophecies such as Daniel 8.14, the three angels' message, the message of Revelation 18, the angel of Revelation 18, how is this message of God's character of love connected to that? And how has this message been corrupted by a false law construct? The message of Daniel 8.14, the three angels' message, has been corrupted by a false law, law construct such that we remain stuck in metaphor. Well, this is Faith I Live By, page 207. One of the founders of our church, 
who helped design some of these doctrinal positions that we are supposed to promote, said the following, the coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary, brought to view in Daniel 8.14, the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days, presented in Daniel 7.13, and the coming of the Lord to his temple, foretold by Malachi, are descriptions of the same event. Same event. How do we teach these prophecies? Well, let's see if we can't run down how we teach this through the imposed law lens. How these prophecies come out looking and see if this resonates with anything you've heard. God has a law that has been broken and broken law requires just punishments. God sent Jesus to take our punishment and God put all sins on Jesus and punished him in our place, paying the proper legal price for the sins of humanity. God, in order to be just and only give the proper amount of inflicted punishment to the unrepentant, keeps records of all our sins. Those records are recorded in the heavenly sanctuary. With me so far? You heard this before? At the end of the 2300-year prophecy, the sanctuary is to be cleansed. Thus the records are opened and the heavenly tribunal takes place in which sins are examined and those legally pardoned, because the sinner claimed the legal payment of the blood of Jesus, are removed from the record books. But any sin not legally pardoned, not repented of, is retained on the books and God will inflict the appropriate amount of punishment on judgment day. Have you heard any of this before? Okay, keep going. Jesus is right now in the most holy place, in the building in heaven, leading out in an examination. Uh, and whenever we pray for forgiveness, he pleads his, to his Father his blood and reminds the Father of his merits, and the Father grants pardon of the sins, and the sins are removed from that person's ledger and placed upon the shoulders of our sin-bearing high priest who carries out our sins out of the sanctuary in heaven, and one day will place them on the head of Satan and punish Satan for our sins. Have you heard this? Am I stating it right so far as you've heard it? Okay, here's the next. Further, when Jesus entered the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant was kept there, and the ark is, uh, in the Ark is kept the Ten Commandment Law, and on the Ten Commandment Law is the Sabbath Commandment. So those who follow their high priest into the most holy place by faith recognize the continued obligation of the Sabbath Commandment and observe the seventh day of the week. These people are God's end-time remnant people because they observe the right day of the week and trust Jesus to legally pardon their sins and remove them from the records in heaven. This people, then, is to give a message to the world that all, that all too often sounds like this. Be afraid of God and worship him as creator by observing the seventh-day Sabbath because we are right now in the antitypical day of atonement in which God is judging sinners, and if you don't worship on the right day, your sins will not be removed out of the record books and you will receive the mark of the beast. How many have heard it this way? This is exactly what Christ was dealing with 2,000 years ago. A religious community who kept the Sabbath, observed the sanctuary law in dealing with their sins, and thus felt secure in the fulfillment of their legal obligations, yet rejected Jesus and crucified the Savior of the world. How would you see these same points if viewed through design law? Should I give you a minute to cogitate on that? Or? Let's go through those points. How does it look through design law? God has a law which is the protocol of love upon which life is based. Constructed to operate. Mankind is deviant from the law and in a terminal condition. This condition requires God, the designer, to heal and restore, lest if he does nothing, death ensues. God sent Jesus to take our terminal condition upon himself and cure the condition, forge a new humanity, thus achieving remedy for us. And I'm going to read to you, we're going to take a, a side here on this point and read to you out of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. Notice, one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now I'll read it to you from the remedy. That was NIV. Here's the same thing, the remedy. For Christ himself is the remedy that heals the species and brings peace. He has removed fear and selfishness that causes division, mistrust, prejudice, and hostility. He did this by partaking of our humanity, our human condition, and via the exercise of his human brain, he loved perfectly, thereby destroying in his flesh the humanity he partook, the selfish survival of the fittest drive along with Satan's lies. In this way, he destroyed the need for the law with all its regulations to expose Satan's lies and methods. His purpose was to be the template of a new humanity born out of the unification of the two. Our selfish, infected condition merged with his sinless state, thereby purging selfishness from the human heart and transforming, healing, renewing, regenerating, recreating humanity back to God's original ideal. And in this new being, to reconcile the human race, regardless of ethnic background, into loving unity with God and each other, through the revelation of truth at the cross by which he destroyed the lives of Satan, reestablished trust, and removed fear, selfishness, and hostility. He came and demonstrated the truth of God's true character and the offer of peace available to all humanity, to those far away in darkness and those blessed by the truth of God's word. For Jesus revealed the truth about God to all, and through what Jesus has done, all have access to the Father by one spirit. So this idea, through the healing view that God sent Christ to take our terminal condition and himself to cure the condition and forge into humanity, thus achieving remedy for us, God, in order to refute the lies of Satan and reveal his true character, has kept records, but not to judge us by, but to demonstrate that all who are lost are lost because they have refused every remedy offered by God, and there's nothing more God could do to save them. There are also other records in heaven in which our sins are recorded. But these records are not judicial records. They are the actual individualities of each person's character being perfectly preserved or recorded in heaven. In other words, every unrepented sin is recorded in the character of the unrepentant. This is why Jesus says, let him who is righteous be righteous still, let him who is wicked be wicked still. And a quote from one of the founders of the Adventist church, I got three little short quotes. The first one is uh, out of Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce, page 62. Remember your character is being daguerreotyped. It's an old 19th century word for photographed. Your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist, what do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern of Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character and making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Second quote, Testimonies of Ministers, page 429. Every passing hour of the present is shaping our future life. These moments spent in carelessness and self-pleasing, as if of no value, are deciding our everlasting destinies. The words we utter today are going to echo when time shall be no more. 
The deeds done today are transferred to the books of heaven, just as the features are transferred by the artist onto the polished plate. They will demonstrate our destiny for eternity, for bliss or eternal loss, and agonizing remorse. Character cannot be changed when Christ comes. And then the last one, very short, Our High Calling, page 317. You must remain pure and true and firm, remembering your character is being imprinted upon the books of heaven. What's being recorded there? Your individuality, your unique personhood. Are you partaking of Christ? Are you having a new heart and right spirit? Are you having the law written on the heart and mind as the new covenant says it's supposed to happen where we have died to self and come to love God and others more than self? And we've been regenerated. Are we the, the new man or is the old man still what dominates us? We've just learned to put on a cool cover. <clears throat> so those records of each person's character are recorded in the heavenly sanctuary because... The heavenly sanctuary is constructed out of living stones. Know ye not that you are living stones built together in the house for the Lord? The apostles are the foundation. Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, we're built together and rise and become a temple for the Lord. The actual people who make up the temple where God lives by his spirit. At the end of the 2300 year prophecy, the sanctuary is to be cleansed. And this cleansing is the cleansing of the hearts, minds, and characters of his people. Of his people. Thus, remember, it, she, remember the quotation that Daniel 8, 14, Daniel 7, 13, and Malachi 3, 1 through 3 are the same event? Here's Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Who can bear the day of his coming? He will be like a launderer's soap and a refiner's fire. He will purify the Levites and refine them as gold and silver. Notice what is being cleansed at the same event according to this passage. Okay, I'm going to pause there. I've got some more quotes, but I don't want to just keep reading. What do you think so far about this central message to the Adventist church that we're supposed to be taking to an end-time world? How have you heard it taken? Which resonates with people's hearts? This idea that there's some legal process going on in a courtroom in heaven in which books are being opened and we're keeping a registry of how much punishment must be inflicted? Or this idea that God is working to transform and cleanse hearts and minds? Yes. It's interesting that Revelation talks about the deeds that you've just spoken about. You know, the deeds that are costing to the lake of fire. It doesn't say anything about the person. It says the deeds are costing to And the lake of fire. How do we understand the lake of fire, guys? What is the lake of fire? Yes, the lake of fire. What is destroyed in the lake of fire? Second death is thrown into the lake of fire. So if you think about this, how do you kill death? What kills death? Life kills death. And who is the source of life? So God, it says, our God is a consuming fire. So his life-giving glory, the presence of his life-giving glory, which again consumes the earth, and all those in harmony live in this 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, stand in the river of fire as God takes his throne. This destroys and consumes all that are deviant from his designs, restoring creation back into harmony with him and life. Death is consumed, yeah. What's, what's thrown into the lake of fire? Everything that deviates from his design. That's cool. I won't read these longer quotes in here out of Education and Desire of Ages where it is stated that every living soul, every living creature is to be a temple for the Lord. And Christ announced his mission when he came in cleansing the temple. That was an object lesson saying he came to cleanse the souls of men because that temple was an object lesson for what we are supposed to be. Yes. Um, what you described sounds more like the Council of Laodicea, um, 
the second version that you taught instead of the judicial one sounds more like the Council of Laodicea. He's there to try to help you overcome. Hey, this is your condition. I want you to overcome and sit with me. Yeah, and, that, and that's the last, the last message to the last time church, which is also part of this. So Jesus is right now in the most holy place in heaven, leading all the agencies at his disposal in the work of cleansing the minds, hearts, and characters of his people from the lies about God, the removal of selfishness, and the restoration of righteousness. They are the building blocks of the heavenly sanctuary. And I'm going to, I will read this quote. This is Signs of the Times, April 17, 1901. The cases, the cases, now notice how I put this together. The cases of all are pending in the heavenly sanctuary. Day by day, angels of God are watching the development of character. All defects must be remedied. The character must be assimilated to the character of Christ. At an infinite cost, a fountain has been prepared for our cleansing. In the blood of the Son of God, we may wash our garments of character and make them white. Notice what's happening in the heavenly sanctuary. The cases are pending, and the angels are watching a book of records and a list of deeds. No, they're watching what's happening in your heart. Are you assimilating and internalizing, eating the flesh of Christ and drinking his blood, John 6, so that you are becoming like Christ, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. My temple is being cleansed. Yes, way in the back, on the line. Dr. Jennings, will the mental disturbed person be condemned by their own judgment? I know they are mentally ill. I believe not, but can you elaborate on it? Yes, okay. So this is a great question, and this, this it makes a distinction between hardware and software, physiology and character. God does not promise us new biology until the second coming when this corruption puts on incorruption and this mortal puts on immortality. That's when we get new biology. So mental disease and defects, Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, all the things that affect the hardware which can cause people to struggle with thought processing and organization and somebody could be a street person because their brain isn't working right, has no bearing on character. So I know many of my patients struggle with bipolar, depression, or attention deficit disorder, or other biological problems with their brain. Yet they are people who in heart are kind, trustworthy, loyal, faithful, selfless. They have a desire to help others. It doesn't mean they're perfect. But when they slip, they're like Romans chapter 7. All oh, the good I want to do is not what I do. What I find myself doing is, that, is something else. And it just grieves me in my heart. So their heart is sickened because that's their character is sickened because they don't want to be this way, but they find themselves being this way because their software desires a new hardware. So no, they're not condemned by their mental illnesses. There's no bearing on eternal salvation. What has a bearing on eternal salvation is the, character, the condition of the heart. So let's look at these symbols in this little quote here, though. The characters must be assimilated to the character of Christ. At an infinite cost, a fountain has been prepared for our cleansing. In the blood of the Son of God, we may wash our garments of character and make them white. So what did this point towards? Blood of Jesus equals his life, which is his perfect character. The new humanity formed out of the two that we read earlier. Uh, once he is made perfect, uh, Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. He was always sinless, but this idea of made perfect in Bible context is once he matured, once he settled in to a, a, a condition of being as a human being that he couldn't be shaken out of it, once he perfected humanity with a perfect character, then he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. 
That's what it's saying here. So his blood represents that perfect righteousness of Christ, his perfect character. What do our garments represent? Our character. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Okay, we have no... So thus we must cleanse our characters... And the washing in the blood of Christ remains removal of selfishness from our hearts and characters and the assimilation of a Christ-like selfless character. That's what it means. That's the reality behind the metaphor. Unfortunately, when you're in the penal view, what it means is, well, I've committed bad deeds. I'm under the foundation of the heavenly tribunal, uh, the government of God. Um, my, there's a record of all my bad things, and I must plead the blood of Christ, which is magic eraser rink that gets, plant, that gets applied to the books of heaven, and it sponges and erases the record of those sins. Now, let's, how do we apply this to the third angel's message? Fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come. How do we apply this, this design view, this idea that God is a God of love, that we're deviant, we're, we're, we're terminal, and he's trying to heal us through Christ? How do we apply it? Well, I, I think that um, God's judgment, the Bible says, as you judge, so shall you be judged. Um, so as you take in Christ and become more like him, you give glory to God by showing what God can do in a sinful life. And so you are the way you give glory to God is being Christ-like through Christ healing you and showing the glory of God, showing what God's capable of. And that comes by being in awe of him, being overwhelmed by the beauty of his character, seeing him for his, that we fall humbly and trust him, open our hearts, that's no, and then the Spirit comes in and transforms us, thus we partake of, become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says, partakers of Christ's nature, partake of the blood and the flesh, so to speak, and we are renewed with a new heart so that we can reveal the Christ, so fear God, be in awe of him, give glory to him, reveal his character for the hour in human history when people are finally able to make a right judgment about God. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Come back to worship the designer, the creator. Stop worshiping this dictator, imperialistic, uh, Roman dictator view of God. Yes? One of the things that the disciples and the religious leaders had the biggest struggle with was the character of God. Because when he showed mercy to people they didn't think deserved mercy, they really had a problem with that. And why? Which law system were they operating under? See, if you're operating under imposed law system, it's not fair. They broke the rules, and rules require punishment. If you don't do it, there's no justice. But how about if you walk in on somebody who has just ingested a poison, and they broke the laws of health by ingesting a poison. They just drank Drano. Now what does justice require you to do? Beat them for their deviation from the law? Or seek to heal and save? That's why it says in John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, have everlasting life. He did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Because it's all design law. We're out of harmony. We're terminal. But yes, they were looking through that imposed law, and that's why they wanted to punish, because they didn't see how reality works. They were drinking the old wine when he's trying to give them the new wine. That's a great point, yeah. So many people look at the verse he mentioned and think of his judgment as being the judgment he's going to pronounce on us. And they forget the fact that it's his judgment. Yes. That, that's the point, yes. The historic way that our church has taken this message to the world is that there's a tribunal happening. And you're coming up under the scrutiny of the judge. And you better be sure you have the robe covering you so he can't see how bad you are. Because if he sees it, he'll be angry and wrathful and all his wrath will come down on you. Isn't that how it's been typically presented? 
Yeah. I've been struggling for a long time in my mind about what you've been saying about the method for salvation. Some of those things are about the, just like the statement you just made, but today what I'm hearing actually fits more in line with this statement that I wrote down a long time ago. And, and if you comment on it, when it's in the heart to obey God, when the efforts are put forth to this end, then Jesus accepts this disposition as man's best effort and makes up for the deficiency with his own divine merit. Yeah, and I think that was written to people running around level four. <laughs> yeah, and seriously, because these are the people who are afraid if they didn't do it right that there's be a consequence, and they'll say, "No, Jesus steps in, and His merit covers the the difference, so the Father still won't find fault with me." In reality, Jesus is simply judging the motive of the heart, recognizing that heart is right. And if they hadn't had years of of sinful living with bad neural pathways and conditioned responses and old habit patterns and deeply ingrained belief systems that are distorted, if all that wasn't part of it, their heart their heart hates that. Would like, but it but they haven't haven't rewired their brain yet so they have these reflexive response and conditioned responses that happen in certain situations and they hate it. Their heart doesn't want to be this way anymore. And think of the environment we'll live in when our heart is corrected and when Christ comes back. I mean, it's a whole different environment that we'll be in. So the, the makeup that he'll, he will have so many different um, tangible things to, to, um, to reference at that point when, when heaven comes down to us and we go to the that makes sense. When we're, you know, so he's making up that that difference by uh, by our tangible understanding of what heaven will be like. I'm going to jump to Wednesday's lesson because this might take a while. There's some really good stuff in Monday's and Tuesday's lesson. It's in the notes. We might come back to it if we have time. But Wednesday's lesson, the last paragraph states: Imagine having to stand before hostile leaders or unruly people and give them sharp words of rebuke and warning. Which, which is what God's prophets often are called to do. My, my question to you is, who is it that needs sharp words of rebuke and warning? What kind of people need that kind of conversation? The mature or the immature? The immature need this. The heart of heart. Those who resist truth, as Linda said earlier, who don't want to listen or think or reason, they're the ones who need it. And people have different levels of psychological development and their ability to assemble. I'm not going to talk about the seven levels right now. They're called def- different defense mechanisms. And there are pathological defense mechanisms, there are immature defense mechanisms, there are neurotic defense mechanisms, and there are mature def- defense mechanisms. You will discover all but the mature have as their goal to protect selfishness, to avoid reality, to deny truth and love. Only the mature ones are the ones that embrace truth and love for transformation. Let me go through some of them. Pathological ones. Denial. What is denial? Refusal to accept external reality because it's too stressful or anxiety-provoking. So this is the addicts, the narcissists, the antisocials. I don't have an addiction problem. I can handle it. I can stop anytime I want. Denial. It wasn't me, Lord. It was the woman you gave me. If you didn't put her in the garden, I've never done anything. Distortion. Twisting the mind around the truth in order to avoid it. See this all the time. This only happens, this only happened to me because the boss doesn't like me. I've never been fired if the boss doesn't like me. The boss doesn't like me, that's why. Distorting reality. Splitting, extreme segregation of events into all good or all bad categories, and then operating emotionally from those camps. 
These are the people who one day think you are the, the, the most amazing person they've ever met, and the next day you're the devil incarnate, and they hate your guts, and they're out to get you. This is black and white thinking. Immature defenses. Acting out. What is acting out? This is the unconscious acting out of behavior of unresolved emotional tension or distress. So a person who was molested as a child and not worked through those trauma emotional issues and and how that has caused them to have a very distorted image of self, not at their fault, but it's still true, they may often act out promiscuously as they're seeking both to punish self because they feel so bad and don't deserve any, and also to control the abuser by seducing and overcoming. Wish, wishful thinking, making decisions on what one wishes life would be like instead of what the evidence and facts reveal life is like. Classic example is somebody in a relationship with somebody who is completely unhealthy and unqualified to be with, but they continue to tell themselves, but they have so much potential, if only. Uh, and then this wish that they will eventually change and be someone else when they're clearly not that person. And so they stay in this relationship and stay exploited. Idealization. Investing someone, and this is again immature defenses, investing someone with greater virtue, intelligence, authority, value, than they actually or rightly possess. Thus, deferring one's decision-making often to this person that's idealized and overly needing their affirmations of you. This happens in codependent relationships. I'll give you a quick analogy. I use my codependent patients and why codependency is so, so damaging. When you seek relationships because you need, I need to be loved, I need to be liked, I need to be affirmed, I need someone, I need, I, the worst thing in the world was to be alone. That, that's terrorizing, terrifying to me. When you need, you lose discriminating ability. So imagine you're scuba diving and you've gotten trapped underwater and your tank is running out. You've just run out of air. And some 300-pound disheveled person comes diving along with their tank and they offer to buddy breathe with you. What are you going to do? Are you going to take that thing and put it in your mouth? Absolutely. Now you're in a dive shop and you're looking to buy a new regulator. And the same 300-pound person comes up and sees the regular, puts it in his mouth, hey, he says, try this, what are you going to do? <laughs> you see, in the first, there's a need. And when you have a need, there's no discrimination. You don't care who comes by. You're going to suck onto them. But when you have a want, I want a new regulator, but it's not a need. I want a relationship, but I don't need one. Then you have discernment, discrimination. No thank you. And people who have this codependent need... They just suck on to anybody who will let them. And these relationships are often dysfunctional, or always dysfunctional. Okay, that's wish thinking, or excuse me, idealization. Projection. This is seeing in others one's own defects or fears, and then reacting to them in the other person, either seeking to, to dislike or, or, or punish or talk bad about the other person because it's really something that, that you don't like about yourself, but you're putting it in them. Classic example of one's own fears and insecurities when one is insecure with themselves. I see this all the time as people will say, I, I hate going out in public. I hate going to Walmart. I hate going shopping. Why? Because everywhere I go, people are looking at me and saying negative things about me. I'm afraid what they're going to say about me. You don't have any idea what they're going to say. You don't know what they're thinking. This is a projection. So think what a movie projector does. What does a movie projector do? It projects an image onto a blank screen. But where's the actual film? Inside the projector. 
This is what people do. They'll project their own doubts and fears and insecurities about themselves out on others and then react to it as if the others are, are thinking that about them. Projection. Passive aggression. When you're angry or upset with another person, but it, it doesn't come out consciously, you don't admit it, you don't deal with it, you don't talk to them, you don't work it out. Instead, you actually may appear on the surface to be supportive of this person, but everything they want you to do, you sabotage, you, you, you procrastinate, you do a poor job, you undermine. I hate passive aggression. I hate it. Have you ever had to deal with somebody like this? You can't, and, and, and you can't deal directly with them, because the more the, the boss or whoever tries to directly deal with the problem the more they smile and agree and then continue to passively undermine. Somatization. This is experiencing your emotional stress with physical symptoms. Now the neurotic defenses. Displacement. Your boss chewed you out and you have a lot of anger at your boss, but you come home and yell at your wife. You displace all your anger that you have at your boss onto someone else. Or you kick the dog. Hypochondriasis. This is the person who has a lot of anxieties and worries, but it all focuses, instead of their insecurities with self, they don't look in the mirror, they don't deal with their own issues and defects of character. Instead, they focus on, there must be something wrong with my health. And they have all these preoccupations with, with something wrong with their health. Intellectualization, avoiding uncomfortable issues by intellectual examination, becoming over-intellectualized. Rational, um, not rationalization, that's actually the next. Rationalization is justifying one's actions as having done right or making excuses. This is classic excuse making. You heard it all the time. Well, it was because. Then there's always an excuse. They're rationalizing why it was okay. Isolation is separating the emotions that are appropriate to an event from the facts of the event. So you may see this if somebody's talking about some trauma experience or some very stressful experience, and they give incredible details about the event, but they have, seem to have no emotions. It's almost like a, a, a robot telling this, that because they've separated or isolated their emotions from their, the facts of it. Comparing self with others. Finding someone who is doing something worse than you and comparing yourself to them and saying, well, at least I'm not that bad. This happens all the time as a way of justifying why you don't need to change or deal with your stuff. Regression, reverting to behaviors that were appropriate at an earlier stage of life, such as whining or temper tantrums when you don't get your way, rather than a mature discussion about the, just the, the, the reasons that you're disappointed and what you can do to overcome that. And then the mature defense mechanisms. Notice these mature defense mechanisms. I hope you notice so far that everything I told you has as its function, what it's doing, it's avoiding dealing with reality, dealing with the defects of one's character, dealing with the self. It's all about self-preservation through some aspect of avoiding truth. All of them. Now notice all the mature ones. Respect. This is recognizing that others have value and worth and that they are ideas, have, they have a legitimate right to their perspectives and ideas. Acceptance. That's admitting and dealing with reality. Patience. Willingness to delay gratification for immediate gratification for an understood better outcome. Courage. The mental ability to stand one's ground and deal with issues. I have to deal with this patients all the time that come to see me. One of the first things I'll have to do with them, and I'll have to say, well, what is your goal for being here? Well, I, I want to be happy. I, I want to I function better. I said, are you ready to stand your ground and deal with your own issues, or are you going to continue to run? 
run into relationships, run into drugs, run into busyness, run into work. Run, 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 because you're avoiding standing your ground. Do you, are you ready to stand your ground and face your fears, face your pain, face your trauma, and work it out? Courage, mature defense. Moderation, self-restraint, keeping reasonable limits, avoiding extremes. That's a mature defense. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control or moderation. Humility, recognizing one's limitations with a healthy self-value, but not over-esteeming oneself, being humble about the fact that you're human, that you're going to use your own judgment, but you're open to new ideas. You're humble about learning. Mindfulness, an ability to live in the here and now, rather than being stuck in the past, either on past mistakes that you can't get over and you just beat yourself up for, or past victories, living that high school home run that won, and you, and you have to tell everybody about how you won that high school. You're 87 years old, you're still living that high school home run. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Living in the past. Or into the future, imaginary scenarios in the future of either self-flagellation and defeat, no, I'm going to fail, I'm going to get rejected, no, I'm going to lose my job, or... A narcissistic, grandiose future possibilities. You know what? The Cowboys are going to call me and I'm going to be the starting quarterback this year. Grandiose future possibilities. I just work a little harder. Uh, Learning mindfulness. Learning to live in the present reality. Gratitude. Having a thankful heart towards the blessings of life. The glass half full rather than the glass half empty approach to life. Altruism, seeking to help others, actually caring about other people, mature. Tolerance, the exercise of tolerance, the exercise of the law of liberty, that you grant other people the freedom to see it differently and hold different opinions than you, even if it's offensive. So we grant other people the freedom to put up a Confederate flag, even if we're offended by it. We grant other people the freedom to put up a Nazi swat sticker, even if we're offended by it. In a free society, we tolerate those differences. We don't coerce people to conformity. Mercy. It's a compassion or grace or kindness to those under one's authority. It's not mercy when you're kind to somebody who has power over you. You see the difference? It's mercy when you treat someone under your authority with kindness and compassion. Forgiveness, relinquishing one's desire for vengeance and retribution. Anticipation, realistic planning for future problems or needs. So anticipation, different than um, this stuck in the future. Why? Anticipation would be something like, well, I anticipate possible negative outcomes, so I wear seatbelts and have analog brakes and have an airbag. That's anticipation. That's not failure to live mindfully. You see the difference? And the last mature one is humor. Processing distressing emotions and painful things with witticisms and quips that allow some, um, some moving through painful things with laughter. Some find it, some, some can get offended by that, but it is actually, if you ever remember the old TV program MASH, they were using humor all the time. These surgeons, seeing all this terrible, terrible traumas that they were dealing with, were always cutting jokes and making jokes as they were dealing with it. That's an example of that. Any comments or questions about this? I want to say about humor, although I've seen the other side of humor, where somebody makes statements that in their heart they really mean to say, but they catch it in humor, which sort of takes away the other person's ability to react 
rightfully to the comment that they're really hearing through this. That's sort of a mean humor. That's not humor. That's sarcasm. Well, people use it like it's a yeah. ha-ha. It's yeah. funny. They just said a cutting yeah. line. Right. <clears throat> You know, I think that kind of humor is very yeah. damaging. Yeah, that, that's not. Yeah, that's not the kind of humor we're talking about here. That is a, a self-centered humor, and it and, and it needs to be called out. They'll say, oh, "I was just joking." Have you had this happen? You're just overly sensitive. I was just joking. Can't you take a joke? Yeah, that's this is what they hide behind. But it's actually a form of passive aggression. It's passive aggressive. They won't deal directly with the issue. They'll do it this way, passively, and as a way to throw those little barbs, but without. Uh, with, a, with a shield to defend them against retaliation and consequence. Yeah, that's a good point. Monday's lesson, we'll jump back to Monday's lesson now. Um, the last paragraph states that the priests were to be the moral and spiritual leaders of Israel. What lesson do we learn from that fact that applies to us today? Well, the Old Testament drama, little stage play, remember it's a stage play. There's nothing that saves in that little stage play. But the stage play acts out a lesson. And if you remember, there was in the center of the camp of Israel was the sanctuary. And around the camp on all four sides camped the Levites. And outside the Levites on four sides were three tribes on each side of the Levites. So the Levites stood, or the priests stood between the, all the other tribes and the sanctuary. And the Levites with their white robes represent what? Symbolically, what's the, what's the reality they represent? Righteousness and truth. Yes, and so who do they represent? God. Yeah, they represent all those true followers of God, which today would be those of us who have accepted Christ and have partaken of his righteousness. So we stand between, and the sanctuary represents atonement, at one minute, coming back into unity, reconciliation and unity with God is what happens in the sanctuary process, the cleansing of us to bring us back into unity with God. And so the, the Levites, uh, or the priest to the believers, stands between that process and the fallen world as ministers taking out this message to bring people back to join the priesthood and be reconciled to God. The Levites, however, the priests in Christ's day begin to become infected with a pharisaical legal uh, belief in the system such that they actually were obstructing people's return to God and making it harder for them to be reconciled to God. Do you think Christianity is doing a better job today of bringing people the truth about God than the priests in the Old Testament? Or are we even putting up additional obstructions, making it harder for people to see God. The Bible says, Isaiah 60, 2 and 3, See, darkness covers the earth, and a thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. What do you think this darkness is primarily talking about in this prophecy? Deception. Lack of knowledge about... Isn't it about God? Isn't that the issue? And it ties right back to what we were talking about with the three angels' messages, with the wine that intoxicate, the old wine versus the new wine. Which belief system about God are we promoting? And so this imperial law construct enters when Constantine converts. The little man of sin that Paul talks about in Thessalonians sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God through this imperialistic system, and the world entered an age of darkness, the dark ages. It wasn't, it wasn't an unpredictable consequence. It was a predictable consequence. When you reject the truth about God, the mind, the character, 
and the system becomes dark. And look at the horrendous things that happen in the dark ages under the name of God. It was a time of true darkness. Tuesday's lesson, the first paragraph, tells us that Jeremiah was speaking the word of the Lord. What does the phrase the word of the Lord mean? The character. The character? What else? When you hear the word of the Lord, does it mean that he is speaking verbatim a dictation from God? When you read scripture, we often call it the word of the Lord. Don't we call the scripture the word of the Lord? Is the scripture a dictation that prophets took from God? God was, was dictating and they were just transcribing. They were transcribing a dictation. How do we understand the inspiration of scripture? Are the words used in the Bible inspired? Be careful. Yes. It's the will of God. The people were inspired with truth, ideas, concepts, and the words they used were human words to describe and convey those ideas. This is uh, from First Elected Message, page 21. The Bible was written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. That's an important thing to recognize. God as a writer and author is not represented in the scripture. Men will often say, such an expression is not like God. But God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial, in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Look at the different writers. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts on the man's word, excuse me, inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself. I think it's profound. Absolutely. When we understand that, then, then we can go and we can translate the Bible into new words out of its original language into a new language. We can rephrase it. We can paraphrase it as long as we stay true to the meaning or the message that was being conveyed. You don't have to use the same words. Thus, you probably know. Yes? Uh, that's why some people have had trouble with Ellen White because she took excerpts from uh, other books of her time that's, that... Um, presented the information she wanted to present in a nice way that she appreciated, uh, she being not that educated of a person at the time. And we look back and say she plagiarized. But she took the same information from somebody, but she might do entirely different things with that piece of information than the original writer had in mind and was doing with those words. We Some people take uh, offense at that, saying she didn't think it all up herself. She didn't write it all down herself. But she utilize what other people, how other people worded things to say what she wanted to say. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. That's well, well said. Sunday's lesson. Let's, let's, let's do, uh, close with this. So, um, fourth paragraph says, the task involved regarding the work of Jeremiah uh, involved great responsibility uh, of, of the prophets, that is. If they told the truth, these powerful people, kings and rulers, would kill them. But if they did not represent the truth, God's judgment would also come upon them. What do you think of this idea? If the, if the prophet doesn't tell the truth, then I mean, if, if the prophet does tell the truth, then the rulers who they're confronting will kill them. But if they don't tell the truth, then, then God's punishment will come upon them. What do you think about this motivation that they're citing here? Wasn't it somebody else who was a prophet who said, I don't speak what is true, my own soul burns within me? Um, like... You're compelled to speak what's true because it's true. 
um, as opposed to out of fear. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying. The Paul said, you know, the love compels us to action. But what do you think about this idea? I, I really didn't. Ha- I really didn't ha- like this idea. There's a couple references that are very similar to this in the Old Testament. I can't come up with it right away, but this is exactly what happened to Jesus. He never, he never took it out in the lower people, but the leaders of the church, he really confronted them, and they didn't like hearing the truth. So when they heard the truth, they killed him. I was going to talk about Jonah. You know, he initially did not want to go to Nineveh and preach, yet God didn't kill him. He kind of urged him in that direction, but he didn't kill him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a comment on, on inspiration. You know, even if God had dictated word for word the Bible, everyone has a different meaning for different words. People's uh, meaning for different words will change over their lifetime. Uh, words change meaning. The, the word means to me different than it means to you. Yep. So... Even that alone would not have done the job, perhaps. So, I agree with you. So, yes, you had a comment. So then it just boils down to me making the choice that I want to do it. Yeah, so this idea, though, this motivation, they actually appeal to level one. This is reward and punishment, the most primitive level of right and wrong decision making. You better, or if you don't, what makes something right is if you, and wrong, if you don't do it, you get punished. Level one. I don't think the prophets were operating at level one. I think they were more mature than this. So I think the idea for the prophets... Now, if you understand reality, you could say, if they put it this way, I wouldn't have had a problem, that they might have been killed by those people, but if they choose to deviate from God's design and go out of harmony with how he's constructed reality work, then they will suffer the consequence of that. Oh, that would have been fine to say, but it didn't come quite across that way to me. It made, it made it much more sound judicial and imperialistic and imposed that you're going to be punished by somebody in this context. You're in a buy now. I hope God doesn't call you as a prophet because if he does, you're going to have to go speak to somebody and the person you speak to, if they're powerful, they're going to kill you. And if you don't, God will punish you and he'll punish you worse. You better just go ahead and get killed. I mean, that, that's almost what it sounds like. It's terrible. Yes. One of the great benefits of this class, and I think everybody would agree if they just take a few moments to think about it, is that you find the balance and and you make the distinctions between myth and reality. And you also make a supreme effort to make sure that we understand that there is actually a consequence of of following the decisions that we make. One One of the things that the Bible says is that if you don't do some of these things, for instance, share your truth, or the will of God with people that need it, there, if, if you don't do that, their blood can be on you. That is a literal consequence. That's not just, oh, it's a shame those people didn't make it, and we made it. You know, how sweet, how sweet is that? And, and that idea of their blood on you is metaphorical, meaning their life. Their, their, and so you, if you're a person who actually has been restored to a tender heart, how would you feel if you saw your children playing in the sandbox and there's a, a poisonous snake crawling in the sandbox and you just sit idly by and don't do anything and they get bit and they die? Would, would that weigh on you? Would that weigh on you for the rest of your life? That's what it's talking about, the blood of the Lord. Not that God is that you didn't do it, so I'm going to have to punish you now. No, when you've been restored to godliness, you have a love for people and their loss grieves you. 
I think that's what it's talking about, yeah? Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and that you've created a universe that operates in harmony with you. Lord, we are often so, so short of that, that goal, but we want to be like Jesus. Thank you for sending him to become the new, the new humanity, forging a new humanity, the new human, the second Adam. We ask that through your spirit, we will be partakers of his nature. We no longer, I that live, but Christ lives in me, we pray. In your holy name, amen.